Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have as members of Lakeside to gather together week after week with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to be encouraged and exhorted from your word. I pray, Lord, as we are coming from a variety of different activities this week, that you would still our hearts, that you would help us be able to focus on you and that you would allow us to begin to apply the word. Lord, we had an entire missions conference last weekend devoted to the idea of teaching your disciples to observe all that you commanded. And I pray that you would help us live that out in our lives. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, our study finds us this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, it's been a while. I've only been able to teach out of Hebrews once this year. I've had a variety of events that, that have kept coming up and hasn't made it where I could get started on this. But today, we find ourselves at the last verses of the chapter. Specifically, we're going to be beginning a study of verses 35 to 39. And the book of Hebrews, really the first 18 verses, were the culmination of the lengthy argument that began in chapter 5 making it clear that Jesus is only the only thing they ever need. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the only great high priest who can give them true peace with God. And so they shouldn't spend any time looking back to the Old Testament rituals, the Levites, or anything like that. They should focus everything they do on Jesus Christ and never turn away from him. And the concern for the writer was that at some point they might fall away. Certainly there were specific warnings about apostasy that continued on and that we're also going to see again in chapter 10, but he really wanted believers to be encouraged by the fact that Jesus was all they need. There wasn't a deficiency in their faith. There wasn't a deficiency in what they believed. It wasn't as though they needed Jesus plus all of the Old Testament. With Jesus, that's it. They had all they needed to truly be cleansed from their sins and there were no more sacrifices to be offered there was a one-time sacrifice that Jesus made that truly dealt with sin. And then verses 19 to 25 of chapter 10 was just the practical application of this. What do they do with all of this theology? They should draw near to God. They should be encouraged. We should draw near to God. We should be encouraged. And we should be doing this with other believers. We don't forsake this, the assembly of the saints. We continually gather together so that we can encourage one another and build one another up. In verses 26 to 31, we're a strong warning again on apostasy. Someone who has seen and felt and known everything there is in Christianity and then they walk away. That was the warning in chapter 6. This is a repeat of that warning and it comes with a very terrifying exhortation or exclamation, which is that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, which is the fate of apostates. And the warning here is timely and real. In fact, we just at our last elders meeting were dealing with a case where we were talking about a specific individual who by any account would be a biblical apostate, which is a scary, scary thing because the Bible makes it clear a true apostate can't be saved. Their heart is so hardened that God takes his hand off of them so it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The, the bottom line is if someone's truly an apostate, there is no hope, and that's what the writer was pointing out. 
And then the writer wanted to make sure they weren't overwhelmed to think that he was talking to all of them, because I think the vast majority of people who were receiving this book were believers. And so he tells them, beginning in verse 32, but remember. And he points them to remembering how they had lived the faith. These were individuals, according to verses 32 to 34, that had come to faith in Christ, and then they had paid a price for that. They had endured shame and ridicule, being mocked. In all likelihood, some of them were cast into prison. And yet it makes clear from the way it's phrased, they didn't run away with it. They endured a great conflict of sufferings. Not only were they personally treated that way, some of them perhaps weren't treated that way themselves, but they were seeing brothers and sisters in Christ that were treated that way, and they didn't run away from them, they went to them. They were willing to count the cost, even if they were guilty by association, they were willing to endure that for Christ. In fact, they were willing to go to prison and visit the prisoners, which in that time frame would have involved caring for their needs because there was no state-mandated prison system where people could file a lawsuit and get all they wanted in prison. Christians who were in prison for their faith were in a destitute circumstance, and other believers were willing to take the chance and go to them. And not only that, they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. In other words, they lost everything financially following Christ, some of them. And they didn't endure it with a somber face. They didn't endure it grudgingly. They were excited to do it. They were joyfully doing it. They did not mind. And verse 34 tells us why. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They were living heavenly lives at one point in their Christian walk. They weren't preoccupied with what was here on earth. They were looking and living for heaven, and that was wonderful. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage him by that. He says, remember that. It seems clear that these believers at one point had been living strongly, but now they had backed off. They were slack, slacking off. And he wanted to encourage them and remind them and stir up again the zeal that they once had had that would have allowed them to endure anything, but apparently was waning. And at verses 35 to 39, the writer's going to complete this exhortational thought, and he's going to prepare the way for what we quite often refer to as the chapter on faith that is the most prominent in the Bible, the great hall of faith, the accounting Hebrews chapter 11, where we hear of men and women of old who exercised faith. I'm actually looking very much into getting into that chapter. I'm still not certain how I'm going to present it because there's so much detail and there's so much there. So I'm still, you can even pray for me to know how best to break up that material. I love history and it will be easy for me to get bogged down with every name. And I don't know if it's bogged down. I just love that type of study. But we're not quite there yet. The writer has a few additional things to say, and those things that he says are going to culminate with a reference to faith, which is the stepping off point for starting the next chapter. So I'm going to read the verses that we're going to start studying today, beginning at verse 39. Excuse me, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Verse 38. 
But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This text is actually going to lead us to study the whole idea of confidence. Confidence is the focal point. Confidence, obviously, in the Lord. And confidence isn't something we necessarily think of as a virtue, because at least in our culture, confidence is almost synonymous with arrogance. Or cockiness. Or being so sure of yourself that everybody steps out of the way. But confidence in the right thing, in the right measure, is not a vice. It's actually a significant virtue that brings with it great blessing. Not only that, it's commanded by God that as believers we should have this right type of confidence. And so that's going to be the focus of our study. Now, I have broken it down into four parts. By the time I teach it again, I may redo this. But it's four principles of godly confidence. That's the simplest way to do it, to break it down into measurable parts so that I can go through it together. And I'm going to try, Lord willing, to cover the first two points today, and then I'll wait on the last two points and try and catch up with it when we get there. But we're just going to be looking at four principles of godly confidence. And the first principle is this. Confidence is available to every child of God. Confidence is available to every child of God. So he starts off in verse 35 and he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Obviously, the word therefore is tying this back into everything he's just said. And part of what he's just said most immediately is talking about how strong they were in the faith because they had a hope in heaven. And he's also referencing, I don't doubt, the lengthy argument about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They already have all they would ever need. They already possess, as believers, the only thing that they need. They don't need to go looking in the Old Testament. They don't need to go to the temple. They don't need to run around after Levite priests. They've had exposed to them that Jesus Christ is the only thing that is necessary to have a right relationship with God. And again, he's just pointed out, he knows that the vast majority of people who are going to receive this letter, certainly there were some unbelievers or else he wouldn't have had to warn about apostasy, but the vast majority of people not only said they had faith, they had lived it out. They had exhibited it in the great face of great persecution and hardship. And so he's telling them, therefore... Accept this exhortation. Accept what I'm going to tell you. These weren't always timid people. If you're willing to be in prison for your faith, you're not likely timid. If you're willing to go and visit prisoners who are in prison for their faith in this day and age, you're likely not timid. If you've lost all of your earthly possessions simply because you follow Christ and you have a smile on your face, there's joy in your heart, There's a boldness wrapped up in who you are that only comes from the Lord. And that's what he's pulling them back to. That's what he wants them to be remembering. So he says, therefore, do not throw away 
your confidence. This is really a very strong exhortation. The idea of throw away carries a particular notion that goes beyond just grabbing a baseball and tossing it or grabbing a football and throwing it away from you in the physical sense. The, the words used actually connotes the idea of taking trash that is worthless and throwing it in the refuge pile, throwing it in the trash heap. The idea of taking something and you look at it and you realize there is no value, this is just waste, this is just garbage, and tossing it away permanently into the trash heap. And that's a pretty graphic way of saying, don't do that with your confidence. Don't do that with your boldness in Christ. Don't do that with the hope that you have in the gospel. Implicit in all of this, you can't throw something away you don't have. He understood that every one of them as believers had confidence available to them. This was something that by their lives they lived out and proved that they possessed. Confidence here, again, is not just talking about some self-assurance. It's one of those areas where a word has taken on such a different meaning in American culture that you really have to get past it because we've altered our entire educational system to make sure that kids feel good about themselves. There's nothing in this that is catering to the self-esteem movement. That's not it at all. What it's talking about is the relationship that true children of God have with God the Father with its ultimate outcome being rewards in heaven. I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. As one commentator said, this type of confidence is steadfastness in adverse and disheartening circumstances. The very thing that verses 32, 34 said these believers at one point had. And he's telling them, that is something valuable. Don't treat that like garbage. Don't treat that in our vernacular, like an empty soda bottle that doesn't have any usage anymore. Now, we don't know specifically what occurred that might have made them even have to have this type of exhortation. If you ran across people and they shared their testimony and they told you that they had been in prison for their faith and or that they had been publicly persecuted for their faith, and they had had friends who were in prison for their faith, and they had gone to them, and they had lost everything they owned, you wouldn't expect them to be weak Christians. You'd expect them to be towering men and women of faith that you would just be in awe of, and yet that's not the picture of these believers right at the moment that this exhortation is being given. One commentator, and it's pure speculation, he speculated that part of the reason this might have occurred is because of peace and prosperity. That under the gun and under the pressure, their genuine faith came out, but take that pressure away, and they might have had the opportunity to sort of lapse into a comfort Christianity. Whatever the case, it seems clear that a faith that was once vibrant and on fire was in danger, so to speak, of dwindling away. The fire had not been tended as it were. It was starting to get cooler. It was starting to die out. And he was exhorting them, don't allow this to happen to you. 
because of everything you've already been through, because of all the theology we've talked about, don't allow yourself to throw away your confidence like it's garbage. The danger that they face is the danger we face. You have to work actively at keeping your faith vibrant. Of course, once you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. But when it comes to your daily walk of obedience with the Lord, it takes effort. That's why the exhortation is always given to read your Bible every day, to pray every day, to think about God daily, not to detach yourself from Christian discipline such that it's only a Sunday activity or a Wednesday night activity. In fact, at the time I was writing that in my notes, I stopped typing. But I realized I hadn't read my Bible. Just the conviction of the busyness of life. I'm preparing a message and yet I hadn't even stopped on myself for my daily Bible time. It's easy for that to slip away. And yet that's the type of discipline that you have to have so that you don't get to the point where your confidence is thrown away. Now, I think what's implicit in the text has applicability to us. It's clear who he was writing to. He wouldn't have told them, don't throw away something they didn't possess. So he knew they possessed confidence. But I don't want you to think from that text that that was just something unique to them because they were super Christians. I think the teaching of the text is that every single believer can have confidence in the Lord. If you recall, over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16... He said, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Earlier in Hebrews 10, verse 19, he says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence. In other words, the expectation is this is something, the right type of confidence, this is something that is available to everyone who is a child of God. And this goes far beyond just the teaching of the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm just going to reference four verses here. I would just encourage you to write them down. I probably don't have time to flip around. But these are just a small sampling from the Old and New Testament that talk about the ability to have confidence in God. Psalm 71.5 says this, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. Proverbs 3.25 and 26, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Second Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The teaching of the scriptures, as Paul made it very clear in that 2 Corinthians text, is not that we have confidence in ourselves, but that if we know God, we can be confident. We can have confidence in his promises. We can have confidence in his presence. We can have confidence that if he sought us out, and drew us to himself and made a relationship with us, 
we can even ask our Heavenly Father and He'll give us things in prayer. And there are countless other passages that express the same idea using different words, talking about boldness and assurance. And of course, again, the place we place our confidence, the source of our confidence isn't ourselves, it's in Christ Jesus. That's the whole point of this book, is that if you have Christ, you have all you need, you can have confidence. And again, this confidence that's being talked about here in Hebrews chapter 10 is not just the possession of pastors. Or it's not just the possession of deacons or deaconesses. It's not just the possession of the super-Christians who are on the mission field or anything like that. This can be the present reality, the present possession of every single child of God. Yet it only comes, first, if we have a true relationship with Jesus Christ, and then, with that true relationship, we have to cultivate the relationship and remain grounded in the promises of God so that all the adverse circumstances that swirl around us on a daily basis living in a sin-filled world don't distract us from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think the... I may have shared this. I probably have shared it. I never recall where I say things. But when I was debating and thinking through and praying about leaving my legal career and going into ministry, I think I, by and large, did a good job of counting the cost. I didn't jump into it. It was a multi-year process. Sought out godly counsel and had someone watch my life over a period of a couple of years. I was never afraid of becoming a pastor per se, but I wanted to make sure that God was calling me and that it just wasn't emotion stirred up because I heard a great message or I heard a beautiful song or because um, some other emotional reason. I wanted it to be a true calling because I knew if I stepped off of the legal track, it was a permanent step, that I was going to devote my life to ministry and that was it. So I counted the cost, I think, financially. I thought and prayed about the cost to Debbie and I stepping into a different role where we're not just part of the church, but we're sort of in a looking glass, so to speak. I thought about what was going to affect my kids because they were, Rachel and Heather were tiny at the time. Christine wasn't even born. But one of the things that I didn't think about enough because I just didn't really... I didn't have any way to know was what the weight of carrying people's burdens would be like. I knew there would be conflicts. I knew there's church dissension. I didn't have any fairy tale notion that churches are wonderful places where everybody there already has it together and there's all just skipping around and singing in the meadows or anything like that. I knew people were there and there'd be hardship. But as a pastor, it's carried a little bit differently. And probably the first year here, that was the most overwhelming thing, was realizing the weight of dealing with people's lives in a sin-filled world. Sometimes things beyond their control, children being sick or, or family members being sick or cancer coming in, not directly related to their sin, just the fact that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and it destroyed what God made perfectly, and now death is a part of the world. But a lot of times it was because people were making sinful choices 
And when the consequences came to roost, it was hard. And again, it's the same reason, because in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fell. And it's a very difficult thing watching people get caught in a cycle where they can't see the Lord because of sin. It could be shame because they can't believe they fell in a certain way. I hope we all realize there is no sin that we're not capable of. When you look at King David, a man after God's own heart, if he could do what he did, I've always known any of us are capable of doing anything. But maybe it's a sinful habit that somebody can't kick, that time and time again they stumble and they fall. Or maybe in a moment of anger they lashed out and said something so hurtful to their spouse it's going to take years to undo or their children. In those moments you want to do anything you can so that people can be healed, so that people can be restored. And I can tell you at those moments any confidence in Christ is probably gone. People don't have that confidence. And for some people, they think it's never possible to have it again. But can I assure you, it is. What's sad in those moments is kind of the pastoral emergency room. The lights are flashing. The ambulance pulls up. And you know what people need. They need to restore their relationship with God. And that's not a mystical thing. That's not a formula. That's humbly coming before the Lord and turning to Him and confessing your sin. 1 John 1, 9 is a tremendous verse. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that moment when people are hurting the most, they can have confidence in their faith, but only by turning to the Lord. And that's the time when we all want to run. We want to hide. We want to pull the covers over our head or in shame turn away. I don't know where you stand today in terms of your confidence before the Lord. I pray that you have great confidence and that you are living victoriously. But if you're not, can I encourage you? I'm not just talking about some theological thing available to other people. It's available to you. God wants you to have that confidence, not in yourself. Particularly if sin is what's robbed you of your confidence, you realize there's no reason to be confident in yourself because all you do is fall over and over again. Can I tell you from God's Word, He can restore you. He can cleanse you. In fact, if you're a child of God, He has already cleansed you. And how do you appropriate that again when you've kind of drifted? You go back to God's Word. Sadly, at times, people think the solution is I'm going to work off all my guilt. You can't. Christ took care of it. If you don't know this verse, write down Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Particularly if you're in a moment where your confidence has been destroyed by sin and you feel far away from God. This is one of those times when you have to think on what is true. 
Of course you're unworthy. Of course your sin is offensive. Of course it's horrible. But that's why Christ came and died on the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's how you have confidence. That's how you have confidence after you've blown it. You humbly turn to the Lord and you confess your sins. Certainly, if you've offended brothers and sisters, you go to them and confess your sins. But in those moments when you think there's been a permanent rupture, I can't have a relationship with God, that's not God talking. That's Satan whispering in your ear trying to destroy you. Because if you're a child of God, there is nothing to separate you from his love. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Again, when your confidence is shot, when you are doubting, go back to God's word. Go back to the source of truth and dwell there. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the reason confidence is available to every child of God. Because if you've placed your faith in Him, He's not going to throw you away like garbage. He may discipline you for your sins, there may be consequences for your sin. But you don't lose your salvation because of your sin if you know Christ. Confidence is available to every child of God. But it's going to come through reminding yourself what Christ has done for you and then dwelling there and accepting it as true. So that's the first principle of godly confidence. Confidence is available to every child of God. And I would encourage you, if your confidence is shot, to turn to Him. I can't give it back to you. Your spouse can't give it back to you. But it's something that Christ has for you. Don't throw it away. The second principle of godly confidence is this. Confidence according to the will of God yields great reward. Confidence according to the will of God yields great reward. 
second part of verse, verse 35 and 36 have this. I'll read both verses. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. The writer of Hebrews appeals to something very tangible and it runs against the counter of where our hearts are. He's appealing to our self-interest. And he's telling us there is a reward for you if you can hold on to your confidence. Again, the whole idea of a reward at times can seem unspiritual. We should always be solely driven by our desire to glorify God. And that is true. And yet it's God who promises rewards to children. It's not wrong and selfish to seek after those things that God has said are your possession. In fact, the Bible says quite a bit about rewards and faithfulness. The rewards of faithfulness, rather. Now, again, I've got a bunch of different references here, so I'll just ask you to write them down. I, it would take too long to flip to each one. But you go back to the original promise that God made to Abraham, Genesis 15:1. says, all these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, it would hardly be unspiritual for Abraham to desire that, given that God's the one who told him, look, I have a reward for you. Psalm 19, verses 9 to 11. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Proverbs 11.18 The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. Proverbs 25, 21 and 22 If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Jesus promised rewards. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, for example. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. The very same thought is taught in Luke 6, verses 22 and Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. 2 John 1, 8. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Again, I was just choosing verses that dealt with the word reward, there are countless other promises in Scripture of the blessings that we have as God's children. In fact, Jesus even used an analogy saying that as we as fallen people know how to give good gifts to one another, how much more is God going to give good things to his children? Matthew seven eleven. 
I don't have it in my notes, but in the first chapter of James, I can't remember the verse, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, tying this all back to the text and the teaching here, he's trying to encourage them to reflect on the benefits of maintaining their confidence. Now, the rewards here are not talking about earthly rewards primarily. In fact, it uses the reward singular. It's talking about the blessings of heaven that are available to them. In fact, if you go back to verse 34... They accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. They showed sympathy to the prisoners, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's really the type of reward he's talking about here. There is a reward in heaven that should motivate us to endure for the Lord's sake. And just as the writer says in verse Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. That applies to us. We have need of endurance. I was asking for prayer for our family. We're going to spend this week. I'm, I'm taking the week off. Debbie and the girls are on spring break. The time where we need endurance. We're tired. We want to get our batteries recharged. But every one of us has those times. You may be in the midst of that right now. We all get tired and dejected. We all get run down. We get weary. But even in those moments, that's not an excuse for dropping the ball and relaxing. That's the time when we press on and remember, like Christ, that ultimately our lives are here to do the will of God. There's, a, I think, a direct tie-in here in the flow of the argument. He's referencing the will of God. If you look back up to chapter 10, verse 7, he's quoting an Old Testament messianic text that points out this truth about the Messiah. Verse 7 of chapter 10. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. And here, knowing these believers need to have endurance, he's pointing them to that very goal and saying, you do the will of God like Christ did. And part of the will of God is maintaining your confidence and boldness, not because of yourself, but because you truly believe the promises of God. And he makes it clear if you've done the will of God, and the first part of the will of God is to believe in his Son, whom he sent to redeem sinners, you may receive what was promised. Again, this isn't some kind of conditional thing in the sense of saying, well, you won't have salvation unless this, but the implication is that doing the will of God in Christ is evidence of the possession that you have laid up for you in heaven, and you can go and receive that inheritance when your time on earth is done. Again, the idea is not that we work for our salvation, but rather that our life of obedience is not unnoticed by God. In fact, I can't recall who I was talking to. I was thinking this week about the notion that even believers are going to stand before God and receive additional rewards. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15. I couldn't tell you the details of how this will work. 
But Paul says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show because it is, is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which is built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Again, I can't fully comprehend what that would be like. There's so many thoughts that run through my head, I just have to stop and realize, okay, this is all I know. But a life of faithfulness is rewarded by God. And it's this reward, this certainty to know that your Heavenly Father will dispense to you great blessings beyond anything you could ever imagine is one of the motivations to maintain and not throw away the confidence that every believer can possess. Again, Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 25, there's a picture of the sheep and the goats separating the right and the left. And to those on his right, he says, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I can tell you, I can't wait to be in that kingdom. But as long as the Lord leaves us here, we keep one eye on that kingdom and then we persevere on this earth. And we have confidence because we understand our inheritance is permanent. If you ever study the various ministries of the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit of God does when He comes and indwells believers is He seals us. Meaning we are marked forever as the permanent possession of God which entitles us to the inheritance and the reward that is referenced here. And so just as the writer of Hebrews appeals to those rewards, let me encourage you. If you find yourself getting caught up and dwelling on all the things you don't have. Or if you get bogged down thinking of all the hardships and difficulties. Don't allow that to rob you of your confidence in Christ. Because even in those moments, understand that there's an inheritance, there's a reward prepared for you in heaven. And that should motivate us. It should motivate you and it should motivate me. All of the riches of heaven await God's children. So that's as far as we can get today in our study. There's two additional things that I'll talk about the next time we get together. But I would encourage you, reflect on whether you have the confidence that God calls you to have. And then take the steps necessary to renew your confidence in Christ. Please join me as I close us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation you've purchased for us. Lord, we understand when we're honest with ourselves, our limitations and our weakness, such that if we're in our right minds, we'll never have confidence in ourselves because we understand that we're always one step away from denying you like Peter did. Or for, from sinning against you like David did. And yet, Lord, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our limitations, knowing our sinful hearts, you still chose to send your Son to die for us. 
Lord, help us have confidence in that. Lord, I don't know where everyone's heart is today. But I pray for any in this class who are hurting or weak, whose confidence in the Lord has been diminished or is gone. I pray that it would be restored. That you'd give them the discipline to turn back to your word, to remind themselves of the inheritance that waits for them and the promises you've given that allow us to hope in you. And I pray, Lord, that we would live with renewed confidence as your redeemed children desiring to do your will. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.